Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'm Anne and I'm in the studio today with Mitch. Hi, Mitch. Hello. How are you going? Good. Uh, we'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and to acknowledge that sovereignty over this land was never ceded. Each week on The Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling, food and other addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Um, Before we um, introduce our guest today, who's Vanessa, um, Mitch is going to just tell us a little bit about this Radiothon and how we're going. Yeah, that's right. So 3CR is just over halfway through its Radiothon and we appreciate every donation that comes in. But we can keep the donations going through donating online at 3cr.org.au. And Anne, did you know $50 pays for one month's supply of coffee to keep our graveyard shift volunteers going? Which is very important. Super important around here. So (laughs) donate anything that you can, and thank you for your support. Thanks, Mitch. Um, So back to uh, the show today. This week I'm joined joined, uh, by phone from Sydney by Vanessa. Uh, Vanessa is in recovery from food addiction and is also a food addiction counsellor. Welcome, Vanessa. How are you going? Hi, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for um, calling in today. Um, so can you start us off with uh, just a little bit about your childhood? We won't go on too much about that, but just where did you grow up? Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, so I was born in Germany. I spent the first... Um, about 19 years in Germany and then moved over to the UK and various other countries before I came to Australia. And, um, yeah, so I grew up with my parents and my two siblings in a house in a pretty small town in Germany. Uh, I suppose I'd describe my childhood as one where um, all of my material needs were met and there was a lot of stability uh, in the household, really. It was just emotionally Mm. maybe, uh, you know, maybe not so supportive. I would describe it as maybe a bit um, vacant, you know, anxious, Mm. um, fearful, empty, that sort of environment. Um, So, yeah, not really connecting much emotionally. And there was a sort of sense of treading on eggshells quite often. Um, So I would say knowing what I now know about... um, you know, emotions and addiction, I would say, was probably emotionally a little bit unsafe in my household. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a history of intergenerational trauma in relation to World War II, um, as is so often the case in Germany with, uh, you know, being both perpetrators and victims. Mm-hmm. Um, so very kind of complex dynamics there. And um, uh, I also... I also do remember lots of happy times playing with my friends in the forest in the neighborhood and being with my grandparents. And so, you know, there was a lot of Mm. um, wonderful things too. Um, 
but yeah, always that sort of sense of underlying anxiety. And I suppose one thing that I mentioned, which was very um, significant, I think, for me in my childhood was... Um, so my mum told me this story. Uh, when I was 11 months old, I had a medical trauma and I had to actually be admitted to intensive care. And um, back in those days, um, so this would have been sort of like mid yeah, mid to late 1970s, um, I, uh, so the parents weren't able to sort of to see the infant. Mm. Um, and so I just remember through having done a fair bit of therapy, that uh, it was like, yeah, that was a very intense time. And my mum said that after that, I was really kind of um, wiped out, she said. So, yeah, that's an interesting sort of detail mm. that I'm still kind of quite interested in mm. exploring in my own kind of healing. Mm. Mm. Isn't that interesting, the, the, you know, the, the magnitude of something like World War Two, and then the, the micro level trauma of, of being hospitalised without your parents, you know, it doesn't take much, does it? I mean, there's so much that in our environments that can cause um, trauma. Mm, mm. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, now, take us right up to your teenage years. How, how were they for you? Yeah, my teenage years, I was... Um, I suppose I grew... I was kind of like a good kid in at school, you know, like always being quite sort of studious and my parents were teachers so that's where that comes from probably <laughs> and did enjoy that part of school um, and had you know friendships um, still always a fair bit of anxiety and I do remember in my teenage years um, even as a, like early on I was quite um, curious kind of promiscuous uh, I got caught with you know everything you can imagine <laughs> in terms of you know smoking and drinking and this and that and um uh, what was significant about my teenage years was, yeah, I felt quite, I felt a bit lost and out of place, um, a bit at sort of, yeah, I had a bit of unease. And I was, uh, when I was age 14 and also 16, I was um, sent away to by my parents to live overseas on sort of like exchange programs. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't want to go. And um I also um, feel that that was, yeah, that was very significant for me in terms of like having experienced a fair bit of instability, especially when I lived in the US in, when I was 16, 17, mm. with a family that was also maybe not quite mentally well. Mm. Um, so there was a few, yeah, instabilities there. So, Vanessa, that move, so sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. Um, what yeah. did that move mean for the significance of the relationship between you and your parents when they sent you away? Yeah, that's a good question. I I felt super abandoned, actually, like in terms of, um, you know, like, oh, my God, I've got to go there and I don't want to go and I don't know anybody and I don't know what this holds for me. So it was quite um, disorientating, mm-hmm. you know. And again, of course, those experiences weren't all bad in the end, right, because we all adapt. Um yeah. But, yeah, certainly it was a shock to sort of, like, be kind of um, taken out of my field of, you know, friends and familiarity at home, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was a good question. Um, so let's let's talk about eating, um, Vanessa. Was there any um, issues with eating around about that time? Yeah. Yeah, my overeating has been present for me as long as I can remember, even before teenage years. So I always say, like... 
you know, I, I reckon I was born with this. If not, then I would have acquired it at a very early age. But it was always a theme. Like I always wanted to eat more, um, even as a young child. And then in my teenage years, like I reckon it must have been age 11. I'm not sure, but I think so. Somebody in my family said, oh, you, you, you know, you mustn't eat so much because otherwise you might gain weight, you get fat. Mm-hmm. And I remember from that period onwards, uh, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody, uh, from that period, it was like a war in my head, you know, about, oh, I keep wanting to eat um, and I'm, I keep pursuing more and more food, but I'm not allowed and I can't. So that's where I started kind of getting into that dieting, binging, yeah. starving kind of cycle. Yeah. yeah. Did it almost act as a way to distract yourself or was it more so uh, I'm being told to do something that I can't, so I'm going to do it typical of a teenager, I guess? Yeah, it was more that. So it wasn't so much to distract myself. It was literally like a fear of, um, oh, no, I'm going to gain weight. And, you know, that whole thing as a teenager, body image, mm-hmm. you know, um, all the kind of pressures that you get from magazines and peers about what you should look like. So that was very big on my agenda, much more so than any sort of distraction. I was really just wanting to eat, but then it was like, no, you can't, right? So there was this kind of conflict inside. Yeah, it's a, almost like a feedback loop but loop of being told, oh, no, I can't do it, so I'm going to do it, and then I shouldn't do it, and feelings of guilt and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Vanessa, what... Um what behaviours did you start to do to control that? Did you did you um, vomit or, or um, just do, do a lot of dieting? I did a lot of dieting. I didn't vomit. Uh, this may sound strange, but I actually really tried and I could never do it. And so, um, yeah, which I know sounds awful, right? Um, and so, yeah, I did. Uh, I, I just did a lot of dieting and I was constantly... Um, kind of preoccupied with I want to eat this and that and no I can't but I'm eating it anyway not that I it was like I couldn't control it I was literally I had that addiction you know I really just couldn't control it but then I would just have this whole kind of feeling of guilt and remorse and shame Mm -hmm. about having done it again which is also so typical right and how did not Mm -hmm. being able to vomit affect you mentally and you know when you were starting to develop those kinds of behaviors it wasn't it wasn't so bad actually. Like I sort of kinda of went, Oh well, I suppose I can't do that which I was almost a part of me was relieved about that because obviously, you know, I couldn't like it just doesn't I don't know, I just had this fear of it or something. It just didn't work. And so I suppose it was kind of like, Okay, well that doesn't work so what I'll do instead then is I'll just do lots of starving myself. So I kind of ended up, you know, binging and then not eating and, and or eating very little and that was that just kept going. But mainly I was definitely doing more binging than starving, let's put it that way. And can you talk to me about your self confidence at that time? Was it really up and down or? Yeah, yeah, it always was really. Um there was always a sense, like from early teenage years, um, there was a sense of, yeah, low confidence levels. When I was a kid and I was overeating, it wasn't, you know, I didn't know any better. Like I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. So mm-hmm. that was all fine. But then as soon as that conflict in my head started, it was basically like, uh, yeah, a sort of low confidence and not feeling good about my body, feeling awkward about being um, overweight and, uh, yeah, not liking myself. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that's nearly taking us up to a, a break. So, um, so we, we'll go for a, a bit of music. We've got Wild Horses um, by Tasha Bellow and Gareth Lydiard. And again, this is from the Rock Quiz um, TV show in Melbourne. Tears 
have been crying So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30 p.m. on 3CR Community Radio. CR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. This is a Living Free Show on 3CR 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. I'm talking today with Vanessa, um, who has lived experience of food addiction and is also a food addiction counsellor. And I think we've actually... um, possibly lost her but I'm just going to uh, test that out if she's still there we'll keep going Um, but in the meantime we will get Mitch to tell us all about the radiothon 
Yeah, that's right. So Wild Horses, what a track. I think it stands up there with the other two renditions of its namesake. Uh, namesake. And uh, and speaking of great music, did you know that $35 will pay for a new turntable stylus so you can keep hearing some of your favourite tunes on 3CR? So to donate and make a contribution to the station, make sure you jump online at 3cr.org.au and keep those donations coming and keep 3CR radical. Uh, thanks, Mitch. I'm just going to test this phone system out. Uh, Vanessa, are you there? I am, yeah. Oh, what a miracle. <laughs> what a miracle. <laughs> That's great. Um, fantastic. Okay, so you took us to the point in your early adulthood where you were feeling a little bit low, uh, self-esteem issues and um, spending a lot of time trying to control your um, your eating. Um, is there a point at that point where you thought you needed to get help? Yeah, I, I actually not yet. Like sort of, yeah. In in the beginning, I sort of at some point, I think it was would have been throughout my twenties. It just kind of was part of me, you know. And um, I had just kind of resigned to the fact that I was always going to have different size clothes, and sometimes I could wear, <laughs> you know, the skinny ones, and other times not. And um, that I was just binging, and then I would try to control it again through, you know, eating less, and uh, you know. Yeah, it was. It just kept going. The the time when I actually really lost um, control and needed help was um, basically kind of. Um, it would have been in my early thirties, and I had just moved countries. I moved from uh, the UK, where I had been, to um, Paris. I mo- I um, broke up um, my marriage. I changed jobs, so everything changed, and then I really lost control, and I was binging so much that eventually I um, I got so distraught about how it was affecting me, not only physically but also mentally, that mm. I uh, went to counselling. Then, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm. And uh, you said a little earlier that you identified with it as part of you and you spoke a little bit about how that represented itself physically. Was it also part of your personality or how did you identify? Yeah, God, that's an interesting question. Yeah, it was, um, I suppose, you know, food was always such an important part of everything I was doing, right? So say I go out with friends or I go out on my own or I'm, you know, um, traveling, or I'm at a social event, the food was always central. It was always a central thing to look forward to. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I just remember that food was always a very big part of what I was doing. I wouldn't say necessarily that it was part of my personality and that I was presenting myself to others, like, oh, I'm a foodie or any such thing, because I was more sort of like ashamed of that part of me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly it was part of me in terms of like the the kind of secret side of me that was always worried about food and weight and always wanting it at the same time. Yeah, that's interesting um, because, you know, I feel like for a lot of people, food is often something they associate with through part of their personality as part of their culture, as part of their family. Um, You know, I had a big family growing up and we would always have foods relating to, you know, what our grandmother cooked us or what our great-grandmother cooked us and those kinds of things. So, it is very, very family orientated. I feel like. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't so much like that for me. I mean, we certainly, um, I suppose, culturally, like say for example, in Germany, you know, we've got these amazing bakeries, which you know, like I loved, and 
And so there were certain things that, yeah, were very cultural. And, you know, we do Christmas really well. So all of the Christmas goodies that you get in Germany are just wonderful. But um, it wasn't so much, <clears throat> yeah, it was it was kind of more of a personal thing in terms of, oh, I really want this and I can't have it. You know, I can't have as much as I want because of the fact that otherwise I'll get fat. So that sort of fat fear, you know, getting being scared of gaining weight. And uh, that was that was a massive fear. Yeah. And is that what you took to the counsellor, Vanessa, or did you go in there uh, thinking that the problem was something else? No, I took that to the counsellor. That's exactly why I went. I said, you know, I'm just distraught, like I'm just so unwell. Um, I can't stop binging and I'm just kind of like, uh, yeah, I can't help myself. Because I remember at that time it was so out of control that I was literally going on kind of like food safaris, you know, where you're literally sort of like mm-hmm. walking in the city from one spot to the next and just trying out lots of different foods. Mm. And it was just horrendous in terms of how sick I was feeling and um, my weight gain, but also the the mental kind of uh, insanity of it. Yeah, I was mm. really frantic and insane and it really scared me. Mm. Like my mental health really scared me at that time. And the counsellor, um, did they point you in the right direction? Did they give you some, some help? Yeah, um, that was really interesting. So I did a few sessions with her. I remember she was sort of like an eating disorders type person. And um, and then she eventually took me to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she took me there, which was really just unheard of. I had never heard of OA before. Ah, and tell us about that first meeting. Did you get a an instant... Uh, message from them or a sense of identification yeah i did i mean when i first went there i I remember it was in the american church in paris because you know i was i was with an english-speaking counselor and um so she was american and uh, she took me to an english-speaking ovaries anonymous meeting and my first kind of um, impression was, oh, my God, I'm in the city of love, and here I am with all these old ladies in a church basement. Like, I was really judgmental. <laughs> how romantic. It's like, what am I doing here? Exactly, how romantic. And um, and But then by the end of the meeting, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not alone. Like, I really did feel quite at home there, and I was so relieved that there was people, you know, speaking my language, not only my language, but as in, you know, understood yep. me. Yep. Mm. And what was it that kept you coming back to the meetings after that first one? I suppose there was desperation, um, you know, and that fear of what will happen if I don't get this under control, mm. but also uh, a lot of um, kind of hope, I suppose, that there were people and I didn't have to be alone and there, there was some kind of a community there. Yeah. Yeah, fear can be a powerful motivator sometimes as well, but it sounds like that sense of community was something that you were really invested in. Can you talk a bit about about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so when I first came to Paris, I was quite lonely. Like, I was quite isolated. I found it difficult to make friends, um, you know, culturally. It's not as... It's a lovely, beautiful city, but it's a little bit, um, I don't know, closed, I suppose Mm. I would say, culturally. And um, so, yeah, I felt isolated. I uh, obviously had been through a separation as well. Um, And when that kind of new community... Um, came up for me, it was a new thing. I had never kind of found a community through um, a problem, 
Mm. Like, you know, before I was living in London and my community was all about parties and raves. and It was really kind of a whole different ball game. But this was, um, yeah, a community of people who were quite um, desperate and distraught, but then also very supportive of each other. Mm. And and did you just stick with OA then on going forward or did you uh, try other other groups? Mm. I did try other groups, but not until much later. So I stuck with OA for like years. I was with OA for uh, must have been about five, six years or so, like, you know, going quite regularly. And then in within that time, I moved to Australia as well mm. and um, continued going to OA. And then I sort of went into OA How because that, uh, as I found out, as I went into OA How, that worked better for me when it was because it was quite structured. And um, I had a sponsor who gave me a weighted measured food plan, which I really needed. I didn't have, um, I didn't get abstinent properly in OA. Uh, it took me a long time. It took me like five years or so to kind of experiment and try to moderate my food. And in the end, what transpired is that I needed a how program. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I spent a fair bit of time in OA how. I also tried FA um, when I was, once I moved to Sydney, but it was difficult to, I know this sounds odd, but it was difficult to get in in the way that um, people were quite specific about the food plan. And I had, by that time, I had a food plan that was kind of customized to me because I had some digestive challenges and whatnot. Mm. And um, so in the end, I ended up in a quite an American-based program called CEA How. Uh, sorry, C- yeah, CEA How. That's right, Compulsive Eaters Anonymous How, which again is a HAL program which is more structured than the non-HAL program, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, that is really interesting. So I had no idea there was an OA HAL. Uh, was the mm-hmm. second one that you talked about there FA, Food Addicts Anonymous? That's right, yeah. Okay, yeah. and uh, CEA HAL. So could you tell yeah. us, if you can, it's, uh, just mm-hmm. what, what are the differences between those? Yeah, um, so... Ah, this is fascinating. Because I'm a food addiction counsellor, I've done a fair bit of research into this, right? So OA basically um, started, I think, in the 1960s. And then there was, at some point, there were, and they always said, uh, well, we're not going to give anybody any particular food plans because everybody's got to know for themselves what's right for them. And then there were people who branched off of that and Mm. went, nah, we're going to have, we need specific food plans. And there was all kinds of fellowships that sort of split off, including gray sheets. They, they're the ones that don't eat grains and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different ones, basically. And so uh, over the last, what, I don't know, sort of, you know, say between 1960s and now, there's lots of them and they all, they're just all slightly different. I think nowadays people also go to the likes of, um, oh, what's it called, sugar and carbs. Uh, anonymous and whatnot so there are different different groups but essentially the the difference between the how and the non-how programs is how stands for openness no sorry honesty openness and willingness and what that means is it's sort of like a very structured i would almost say i don't like the word but it's sort of like a rigid program you know where you you know you've got certain requirements like you've got to show up to three meetings a week um you've got to call your sponsor every day you've got to make um, three other calls to other members you've got to have a food plan (laughs) whereas oa was a little bit more sort of you could kind of do as much as you wanted um and so i in the sort of last 
I don't know, 15 years or so that I've been in recovery, I ended up discovering many other addictions as well. And so yeah. I've visited many <laughs> other 12-step programs, as you do. And, um, and I've always done best in the programs that are how, because if you go to other 12-step oh. programs, you'll find that some of them are how and some of them non-how. So the how ones are the sort of more rigid ones. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, I just need those. That's interesting. It might, might be just a, a different personality needs different things or um, different people need different things at different times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Mitch has got a question. He's interested in um, harm minimization as it applies to the other addictions. Um, go yeah, ahead, that's right. So you mentioned how diverse some of these groups can be in terms of sugar and carbs and whatnot. What about your own methods in dealing with your own addiction? Did you do anything specific or um, related to you um, that you found really helped along with the, the meetings that you were going to? Yeah, absolutely. I started off trying in OA where I think they said, you know, they'd say just have three moderate meals, nothing in between. And so moderate for me was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. Basically. I don't understand it. And so um, I couldn't do that. And so I tried to do it many different ways and nothing was working. And so in the end, what worked for me is a very... Uh, again, I'll use the word rigid, very structured food plan. And I have a food plan like that to this day. I've been abstinent for nine years on this food plan, which sort of, you know, evolves over time. But basically what it is, it's no sugar, no flour, no kind of other trigger foods. Um, and I eat three meals a day, nothing in between. And they are weighed and measured. So the weighing and measuring for me is key because some of us, Many of us who have food addiction also have a thing called volume addiction, meaning that we're not only addicted to certain foods, but also the process of eating. So the addiction mm. is actually not only a substance addiction, but also a process addiction. And so the only way that I can um, sideline that is by weighing and measuring, because then I don't have to worry about my body not understanding when I've had enough, because my body doesn't understand that. It's mm. very interesting. Um, Mm, yeah, and so since I've been doing that, I'm totally free from food obsession. Like I'm totally at peace with my food addiction. But as soon as I try to eat any other way, mm-hmm. I'm back in there. Mm-hmm. So that's your kind of abstinence, isn't it? You, mm-hmm. you abst- you, that you're abstaining from certain uh, trigger foods and, and trigger behaviours that you know mm-hmm. will. That's right. Yeah. Now tell us about your um, work now as a food addiction counsellor and coach. Mm, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's an interesting journey too. Like I suppose what happened is when I was still in Paris and I got into recovery, I, for some reason straight away I was like, I want to get into this. Like I kind of, I was, uh, you know, I, I was obviously in distress, but what I was enjoying about the whole journey was the kind of journey of discovery and knowing, learning about myself and kind of understanding this stuff as well, right? Mm, Addiction mm. and, and you know, what was going on. And, and so as I was getting into this uh, in my own recovery, I decided straight away, okay, I'm going to train as a counsellor and a coach. And so I started doing that quite early on, just in parallel. I wasn't practicing. I was just uh, studying mm-hmm. and um, trying out different bits of therapy here and there and and um and so yeah I then eventually you know I was I think I was two years abstinent um and I started practicing as a counselor in 2015 kind of like started as more of a coach and have sort of since been moving more into 
counseling and even psychotherapy, so sort of deeper mm. and longer term work, even though people still tend to come to me uh, quite often initially and say, you know, I just want to get this food under control. So, let you know, you tell me yeah. what to do. And so, <laughs> you know, there's a bit of a mix between how we work together, but essentially it's um, it's that sort of sense of somebody comes and usually they come because they read uh, on my website about my lived experience and they sort of go, you know, I've tried to speak to eating disorders people and it didn't quite work and I read the word food addiction and I read your story and oh my god right Mm. so this is often what I get so it's really fascinating but yeah that's kind of been um, the story and I suppose since then also I've um, discovered underlying the sort of underlying complex trauma that we spoke of earlier Mm. uh, which I've worked on as well and so now I sort of you know, work in work in that area as well with clients, which is usually the sort of more psychotherapy work. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? The difference between the the why and the how, and some people need one mm. at different times, and some people need the other. Or we both mm. need both. <laughs> overall. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, will you give details of your website and and your services at the end of the show? Is that will you? Yeah, I can do that. Sure. sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we'll go to another break, and um, this is a song very uh, lovely song by uh, Rufus Wainwright called Dinner at Eight and it's about his uh, traumatic relationship with his father. No matter how strong I'm gonna take you down with one little stone I'm gonna break
Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy... Aha! Pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Um, we're talking with Vanessa about compulsive eating, and uh, but before that we'd like to talk a little bit more about the Radiothon. Um, I'll just get Mitch to tell us. Thanks, Anne. So yeah, 3CR is halfway through its Radiothon, and although we're halfway over our goal, we're just over the halfway line rather, um, we can use all the donations that you guys are sending in, and we're very grateful for those. So if you want to keep hearing perspectives that aren't broadcast in mainstream media, like the Living Free Show and other great shows on 3CR, make sure you jump online and donate at 3cr.org.au and keep Radio Radical. Thanks, Mitch. Um, thanks to everyone who's donated, especially to Living Free. We did um, reach our target, so thank you so much for that. Um, still feel free to donate more, and uh, it doesn't have to be to the Living Free show, of course. It can just be to this great radio station. Uh, now, Vanessa, tell me you're there. Mm, I'm here. Fantastic. Ooh. That's good. <laughs> it's not that I don't trust myself or anything with these phones. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So you were t- uh, talking to us about your um, your work as a food addiction counsellor and coach. Is there anything else you'd like to say about that, just to take us into the next section of the interview? Um, no, I think that's all. I just I really enjoy it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a wonderful sort of process of, you know, um, I suppose, you know, recovery uh, the, you know, a personal recovery journey, which then leads into being able to support others as well, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. and that would be good for your own uh, recovery too. Mm, yeah. Yep. 
Mitch? Uh, yeah, so I just have one more question about that, Vanessa, if you don't mind. Um, mm -hmm. How does your current role as a food counsellor kind of perhaps give you a, a power over your addiction or the um, states of trauma and grief that you had to overcome? Mm, yeah, interesting. Um, how does it give me power over? It's like, I mean, you know, the thing is when you're doing counselling with others, you're supporting them. So really when we do clinical supervision, uh, which obviously we have to do as counsellors, we kind of make sure that we take care of ourselves elsewhere so that we don't have to sort of, you know, get, uh, I suppose, um, uh, any sort of emotional, uh, how do you say, like that we don't sort of get any emotional gratification out of, um, you know, working with our clients. So mm -hmm. what, what that means is that, you know, I sort of get my, um, my kind of support elsewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, for sure even though it's still very rewarding. So I suppose the way it does help my recovery is that it it reminds me of how, um, you know, how many of us struggle with this, you know, that there is a community out there of people who struggle with this and that also, I suppose, in a way, my journey has a value to others in terms of my lived experience can actually help others. So in that way, it's obviously very um, you know, very gratifying. But I suppose what I'm saying is, uh, you know, I sort of try to keep the professional um, kind of boundary at the same time, if that makes sense, and, and work through that with my supervisor. Yeah, it does. Thank you. And other than your supervisor, what about um, your practice of the 12-step the program in your daily life? How does that look? Mm, yeah, yeah. So the 12 steps have been with me now for... Oh, at least 15 years and, 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 you know, are very much still with me and are sort of like the cornerstone or the baseline of my recovery. And I think they always will be. I think it's kind of a lifestyle as opposed to just, a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a sort of program. So, um, yeah, uh, especially, you know, having been through a bunch of 12-step programs and still kind of, you know, um, participating in certain things and also, you know, having friends in those networks is very, very important to me. Mm. Um, but also, you know, just the basics in terms of like uh, whatever happens in my life, uh, you know, I, I can kind of admit powerlessness. I can consult with my higher power. I kind of have learned over the uh, years with the 12 steps to kind of build and continue to evolve a relationship with a personal kind of higher power. I call mm -hmm. it spirit. Other mm -hmm. people call it other things, right? Yep. Um, mm. And then sort of handing over, practicing handing over and kind of handing over to my higher power, check, checking in with my higher power. When is it kind of like um, my higher powers will and when am I trying to sort mm -hmm. of, you know, run the show and also kind of clearing house regularly, like doing um, step 10s, um, you know, engaging in spiritual activity, whether it's prayer or meditation or something that really nourishes me, doing service. So all of these really apply to my life still today, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what was your journey with the 12-step program like? Were there some steps that gave you more difficulty than others? <laughs> oh, God. Um I suppose um, uh, I suppose step three, right? That's sort of like <laughs> handing over, like sort of um, 
it's I mean, you know, it's a daily thing. Like it's 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 not only daily, it's like all the time. It's like, you know, am I trying to be in control or or you know, who's in control? Like am I listening to what spirit is saying or what's going on? And I get that especially when I'm stressed or in fear or I'm worried, I sort of suddenly find that, oh, this is not you know, this is not spirit. This is kind of me being in a part of me that's being worried or stressed about something, right? So there's a lot of fear there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, step three, like I've always been willing to do the work, even things like step four where, uh, you know, it can be very painful to sort of sit in the um, the pain of all of the kind of, you know, the things that come out of the inventory. But I've always found that almost easier than step three, which is sort of like, uh, yeah, just remembering that, I'm not running the show, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And and when you do this, when you have done step four, um, in what ways has that helped you make sense of the experiences that you've had or, or just make sense of yourself? Mm. Yeah, it's been huge. I remember my very first step four was like the weirdest um, feeling because for a while I walked through life with like uh, – a bit of an identity problem. Like I sort of, I, it was like my masks had dropped and I was like, oh my God, who am I? Because mm. uh, I just, you know, saw all these things that I, uh, that, that, that sort of all these patterns, I suppose, and how they had repeated themselves and how they gotten me to where I was, uh, you know, then. And, um, and, you know, how my family history contributed to that. And so it was quite painful, but also quite, uh, yeah, just really perplexing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And um, can you talk to me about your own relationship with your spirituality and how you kind of had to utilize that through the program? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a lovely question, yeah. That's really evolved. It's interesting because I've always had some sort of a connection to spirituality. So I remember this time when I was like a young kid. I would have been, I don't know, six, seven, eight, I'm not sure. And I was walking to school and there was this sort of voice inside of me that said, everything's going to be all right. And it was quite a bright kind of feeling, quite a sense of things are going to be okay. And um, I kind of lost that over the years. And now that I'm, you know, since I'm back in the 12 steps, uh, I've sort of got that back and I can draw on it, um, even though I'm very often, right, in day-to-day life, I'm very often in fear. Um, but I can get back there to spirit. And what in the beginning, what um, I was doing with my spirituality was I was kind of doing all the prayers that, you know, we have in the big book and all of the literature, all of the 12-step literature. Um, and now it's a little bit different. Like now I sort of just talk to God uh, or spirit all the time. Like I'm constantly kind of um, praying in my own way. I don't know if you guys have heard of um, Carolyn Mace. Oh, Miss, I think her name no, is. Uh, she's um, she's like a sort of I don't know spiritual author, I would say, um, and speaker um, from the states. And she uh, she's got this book which I can't remember what it's called. It's something like Intimate Conversations with God or with the Divine or something mm-hmm. like that. But it's um, it's essentially her just kind of like uh, talking about you know having open conversations with God and uh, and I kind of do that too like that's my way at the moment of of con- connecting with spirit and another thing that always 
works best for me is connecting with spirit when I'm quiet, when I'm silent, when I've not got much on, when I've got spaciousness in my day. And I sometimes do go to sort of like retreats or, or quiet places to get that connection because when I'm really busy, that's when the connection goes. Mm. So mm. you've got you've put things in place like, for instance, like yoga or something to to sort of oh, yes. um, you to work with that side of yourself. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. yoga has, is a is a practice that I started, um, yeah, many many years ago, and that's absolutely yoga meditation. I do that mm-hmm. very regularly. Meditation actually. Um, not as much as yoga. So yoga, I do a lot like body movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, any body work is extremely important to me. Um, it sort of just helps with all of the kind of release of trauma and energy. And it's very kind of calming and soothing to my nervous system. Yeah. Um, meditation works best for me when I sort of do something like I stare at a candle or something. I don't tend to sit in a lotus position and meditate. Uh, that, mm-hmm. That's not really my thing, but I do sort of, Best I do best when I'm sort of just sitting quietly and contemplating or being silent or, or looking at something. Mm-hmm. Um, Vanessa, can you just give the, the surname of the author you mentioned before in case someone's interested in uh, following that one up? I didn't catch the surname. I've got Carolyn. Yeah, Carolyn Mace. Uh, I think that's how you say her last name. M-Y-S-S. Um, M-Y-S-S, yep. M Y S yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So she's quite well known. You'll find her all over Google for okay, sure. Okay, sure. Um, we are at the end of our show already. So, um, Vanessa, thank you so much for um, for being on the phone today and, and sharing your experience with us. Yeah, thank you. That was really enjoyable. Thanks for having me. And I just want to say how um, how important it is to have these lived experience and stories. And I really enjoy your podcast. And I really um, hope that people resonate with this with my uh, experience because um i just remember when i first came into recovery that uh you know listening to these oa recordings back in the day mm-hmm. i was listening to like mm-hmm. la oa la or whatnot you know all these yeah. things that they've got recorded and they were so helpful for me so yeah I, I i think you guys are doing a great job thank you yeah thank you for that endorsement um yes yeah, so, so to the audience we've got a full list of podcasts going back for several years on the um uh living F- free page on the um, 3CR website so um, please go there and you can just listen to podcasts all day Uh, so thanks again Vanessa Um, and to everyone out there if you're having difficulty with compulsive eating you might like to contact Overeaters Anonymous you can find them at oa.org.au all meetings uh, welcome newcomers and the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively Um, now Vanessa uh, mentioned a few other fellowships and also works as a um, a coach in this area and a counsellor. Vanessa, can you give us the details about how people could contact you? Yeah, that's easy. You can just uh, look at my website, which is um, vanessacredler.com. So that's V-A-N-E-S-S-A, Credler, K-R-E-D-L-E-R.com. Beautiful. Okay, so that's Vanessa Credler. K-R-E-D-L-E-R, VanessaCredler.com, and you'll find mm-hmm. um, how to get in touch with Vanessa that way. 
Um, coming up next, we have Balamoir, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Tao Jim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR, and uh, we'll take you up with the song, but Mitch will put a final call out about why you should uh, donate to the Radiothon. Yeah, that's right. So we're just over halfway through our Radiothon this year, and although we're appreciating the donations that are coming in, we can always use some more. So don't forget to jump online at 3cr.org.au and make a donation and keep living free and the other great shows here at 3CR going. Thanks, Mitch.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.